This sermon, one of our seven shaping virtues, godliness, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, May 14th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Guests, glad that you are here. My name is Derek Overstreet. I have the privilege, like Tom, of being one of the pastors here. This morning, I have the privilege of bringing God's Word Would you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. We are going to finish our Seven Shaping Virtue series today. As you saw on the overhead, next Sunday we will begin a series in the book of Psalms. Looking forward to that very much. Would you stand with me? If you're visiting, we like to stand just as a way to set apart the reading of God's word together. This morning, just two verses, but powerful, powerful as the spirit works their understanding and application into our hearts, no doubt. Romans 12, verse 1, the apostle Paul writes the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. may be seated. Pray with me. Lord, this is your word. This is your day. We are your people. Your spirit is here. And before the foundations of the world, you intended to work in each individual present. So, Lord, we come with a confidence that you will transform us, that you will change us, that your word will not come back void, but it will bear fruit. Lord, I pray that each person here, beginning with me, that we would humble ourselves before your word this morning. Lord, that we would look to your word and realize you are engaging us. You have something for each one of us. And so, Father, with a humility and an eagerness to experience your work, we now come to your word, confident that you will have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. On July 16th, 1999... John Kennedy Jr. single-engine piper Saratoga crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, killing John, his wife, Carolyn, and Carolyn's sister, Lauren. All investigations into the cause pointed to a phenomenon called spatial disorientation. This occurs when a pilot flies into conditions that prevent him from seeing the horizon or the ground. 
reference points that normally guide his senses disappear. His sensory perceptions become unreliable, and he can no longer discern up from down. It can be deadly. Now, most planes are equipped with navigational instruments, so if a pilot enters conditions where his sensory perceptions become unreliable, he can fly by the instruments. But this is much harder than it sounds. When a pilot is spatially disoriented, his desperately urgent instincts are based on unreliable sensory data. So if everything in him is shouting, bank right, but the instruments indicate he should hold steady, he will instinctively doubt the instruments. As one expert stated, reflecting on the Kennedy crash, you have to be well-trained to disregard what your brain is saying and instead fly by the instruments. John apparently had not received this training. Well, today we look at the seventh and final shaping virtue of a gospel-centered life and church. In a word, godliness. Godliness. As we will see today, in its simplest form, godliness is flying by God's instruments. It's allowing God's instruments to shape and influence your life. Whether the skies are clear, you are facing the headwinds of our culture, and indeed they are strong today, aren't they? Or you are facing the the storm of circumstance, godliness, in a sense, is flying by the instruments that God has provided. Uh, Our webpage says this about godliness. In justification, God has declared guilty sinners to be righteous through faith in the finished work of Christ and has done so by his grace as a gift. Thus, those who are freely saved through the gospel are called, empowered, and motivated to live a life that reflects and pleases God, i.e., fly by God's instruments. Motivated by a desire to please and honor the Lord, Christians are to strive after holiness and be doers of the word. We put sin to death and we live in all things for God. In so doing, our lives testify to the goodness of God the power of the Holy Spirit, and the reality of the gospel. Compelled by grace, believers grow in the knowledge of God, obey Christ's commands, walk by the Spirit, mortify sin, and pursue God's priorities and purposes. This results in godliness, progressively increasing in the believer's life. Godliness. I worked to craft my own definition of godliness this week, and I came up with this. Godliness is an active life of faith built on the commands and promises 
and wisdom of God's word rooted in our identity in Christ and confident in the power of the Holy Spirit. The word, the gospel, and the spirit are the instruments of God to produce godliness in the lives of his people and the church. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning from what may be, perhaps in your mind, an unusual text to preach about godliness from. The Bible talks about godliness in numerous places. It talks about training yourselves for godliness. It talks about godliness, the relationship between godliness and contentment. And although you won't find the word godliness in our text today, the essence of and the path to godliness is nowhere more apparent than in our passage this morning. So three points that I want to draw from these two verses, and we'll sprinkle in some application along the way. For those of you who love to take notes, uh, point one, the reason for our godliness Uh, The second point, the reality of our godliness. And then finally, the path to our godliness. Let's let's look at the first point, the reason for our godliness. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know where Paul is. For 11 chapters, he has been theologically unpacking the gospel. He started in chapter 1, verse 18. And of course, by the time he was done... By the time he was writing about the mercies of God and the propitiation of Christ, about the grace of God in the the sacrifice of his son that brings forgiveness for sins and imputes a righteousness to all who come to him by faith. For 11 chapters, Paul has been profoundly unpacking the gospel reality. And by the time he was done... We find him personally undone in awe and wonder at God's provision in Christ for this hell-bound sinner. Notice how chapter 11 ends. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then he says this, This is the wrap-up. This is the bow on 11 chapters of gospel preaching. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's what it looks like to worship with a pen. Paul's theology has suddenly broke out into doxology. The, the, go, the glorious gospel that Paul has been unpacking moves from his head to his heart and he explodes in worship. In one sense, Romans could end right there. <laughs> right? We can, we can just all go home now. Our minds have been filled with the wonders of God in Christ. Well, according to Paul, no, we can't just all go home yet. Paul is not done. And so he is going to spend the next four chapters of Romans, the final four chapters, showing us 
what the first 11 chapters mean for our lives. Why does it matter, Paul? What should be our response, Paul? How should this affect us? That's what Romans 12 through 16 explains to us. And so we find Paul here in chapter 12, verse 1, turning a corner when he writes, notice verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, the mercies of God are an obvious reference to the gospel. They are a reference to everything Paul has just unpacked. The mercies of God toward the sinner in Christ Jesus. Second, you notice that word, therefore. It, it points us back to all that Paul has just written about the mercies of God in the preceding chapters. So Paul begins, he turns his quarter by saying, listen, based on what I have just explained to you that God has done for you, now, that's chapter 12, verse 1, now, now live in the good of it. Live in, the, in light of it. Live a certain way. Or as the rest of Romans exhorts us to, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. You know, if you've studied Paul's letters at all, you know <laughs> that pastor is the master theologian for sure. But one of the things that makes him so masterful is he always allows the imperative to follow or to flow from the indicative. What I mean by that is, is Paul always motivates Christian behavior with the love of God in Christ Jesus. He never says, just do it. He always says, let me remind you of what has been done for you so that you with the right heart can go out and live for the one who has done it for you. We, we need this, and Paul knows it. We need to start this text. Any time we approach, especially a topic like godliness, we need to begin here. We need to begin with an appeal to the mercies of God toward us and in us. If we don't, then, then we will be vulnerable to one of two extremes. One, legalism, right? Just that word godliness. It, for some people, it, it gets the legalism tennis going, right? Don't tell me how I'm supposed to live, pastor. That's legalism. In the words of Lutheran satire, oh, pastor, that's legalism. Some of you get that, some of you don't. The Bible talks about legalism as an appearance of godliness, an external godliness that is really no godliness at all. Legalism is trying to earn the favor of God, going at your own in the Christian life apart from the mercies of God. 
On the other extreme, you have licentiousness. Right? In, in, in Galatians, Paul dealt with legalism. In James, Paul dealt with licentiousness. And licentiousness is to say there's a presumption of godliness. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm good to go. And so we don't take the commands of God's word serious. We, we don't take the pursuit. We don't take what Paul says here. Notice in verse the word he uses. He doesn't say, consider therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. He says, I appeal. Paul is appealing. He's trying to persuade. He says, this is of the utmost importance that by the mercies of God, you pursue godliness in your life. So we have to be careful. We need to approach the Christian life in the shadow of the cross, if you will. In the good of the gospel, ever before us, our identity, not in how we live, but in what Christ has done for us. I do not pursue godliness to gain God's favor. I do not pursue godliness because it's morally appealing. I do not pursue godliness because it's religiously productive. Indeed, there is great gain in godliness, but not legalism. You know why we gladly, joyfully, eagerly pursue godliness? I do what I do because Christ did what he did. Stamp that in your brain. That, that can be a canned, hollow, but if you understand it correctly, it is packed with theology. It is packed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I live how I live because Christ died for me and redeemed me so that I could live for him. This is where it begins. I, I pursue godliness because God has mercifully pursued and made me his in Christ. That has to be our starting place every day when we wake up. When the alarm clock goes off, preach to yourself I will live today in view of the mercies of God. His mercy toward us is the foundation and springboard for how we live. His, his, his mercy toward us in Christ gives way, gives way to our godliness. The legalism and the licentiousness, the problem is the same. It's a misunderstanding of justification. It's a misunderstanding of what was accomplished for us on the cross. And so we go back to the heart of the gospel, and we begin our day there. And, and, and I would submit to you that when we, that can be said of us, then it will be said that our pursuit of godliness becomes God-glorifying worship. That's where Paul goes next. He sets our eyes on Christ and calls us to worship 
In fact, worship is the reality of our godliness. Biblical godliness is not simply behavior. It is actually worship. Notice again in verse 1 what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You, you probably caught this, but the language Paul uses in the second part of verse one, guess what kind of language it is? It's worship language. Terms like present or, or present, sacrifice, worship, holy, pleasing, these are priestly terms that would have taken at least the Jewish readers, the original audience, would have taken them back <coughs> excuse me, to the, to, the old, to the sacrificial system of the old covenant, which was established by God as the way that they would worship him. And so Paul's language here is intentional. He wants us to think Worship, And that's one of the reasons why I like this text for godliness, because godliness, true biblical godliness, is just that. It is worship. R.C. Sproul points out the <clears throat> language of worship. He says, the sacrificial system is the old, and he's speaking of the Romans 12, so that's the context. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament is over. The detailed descriptions that were given to the people of God on how to fulfill their obligations in the temple and in the places of worship pointed ahead to what was going to take place in the future, the cross. They were shadows of the full orb light that was yet to break through. They anticipated and typified the perfect sacrifice that was offered by our Lord on the cross and for all, once and for all. So when the present when the perfect sacrifice was made, that was the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system. No longer do worshipers come with sheep, goats, bullocks, and cereal offerings and burn them before the Lord as a sacrifice for their sins. And he says this, but there is still a New Testament sacrificial system. It is not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. God does not ask us to bring in our livestock and burden on the altar. He asks us to give ourselves, to put ourselves alive on the altar. To be a Christian means to live a life of sacrifice, a life of presentation, making a gift of ourselves to God. True biblical godliness. Because of God's mercy toward us in Christ, every day, only in the power of the Spirit, we present ourselves to God. We don't live for our own glory, do we? We have one ambition it's God's ambition, it's the renown of His name. We present ourselves every day to the Lord as a living 
sacrifice. Not in the temple, not in the church building, but with, in Paul's own words, with our bodies. With our bodies. Now, the, the term body here, you, you may know this, but it refers to the whole person, to the body and the soul, the outer man and the inner man, our thoughts and our affections and our actions. In other words, God, godliness is not dropping a check in the offering box or good attendance at community, at community group. True godliness goes beyond the external. It's total transformation. Paul's going to use that word in a moment. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. That's what the gospel does. It makes us new creations to give God what he is worthy of. Our whole selves, our full submission. We die to ourselves and live for Jesus. Have you, you seen that Paul uses that language, doesn't he, in other parts of scripture? This is what he means. It's worship. It's godliness. We say to our sinful passions and desires, no. We die on the altar of self and pursue God's desires. We say no to our anger, lust, and greed. We, we say no to our subjective feelings that beg us to push righteousness aside. And metaphorically speaking, we climb up on the altar and present ourselves for his glory by living according to to his righteousness. In a word, godliness. That is worship. Just a simple example of climbing up on the altar from my own life. Just happened this week. I was in a Starbucks. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but there's a Starbucks that has in my mind the best seat in, the, in any Starbucks. It's kind of tucked back in the corner, but it's up on the bar. You know, the bar's probably four or five feet wide, so you're a little removed <coughs> from the baristas there. But I always like to find the place where I can see all the doors. I can see who's coming and who's going. So this is like the perfect spot. Well, right next, right in front of me, about three feet in front of me, is where they're, you know, cleaning the dishes and they do a blender and... So I'm sitting there, and I notice this guy is, boy, he is just being loud and pounding. I know they're busy, and I thought, boy, that, that's, that seems a little obnoxious to me, but I didn't say anything. And finally, he pounds that pitcher on the, uh, on the counter, and whatever was in there was all over my laptop all of a sudden. It, had, it was on the front of my laptop. It had come over the top of my laptop. It's on my keyboards. I'm looking for it on my shirt, and I... And I remember just looking, looking up, going, "Hey, that—that's a little aggressive, isn't it? You, you got, you got stuff all over my laptop." I mean, I was—I was expecting an apology. Oh, I, oh man, I'm sorry. Uh, l- let me take you know. Instead, the guy just kind of looked at me and he said, "Oh," almost in a grunt. The moment he did that. I'll tell you right now, I'm just going to be honest, anger was welling up. (laughs) 
And there was a pause. And I said, well, man, could you, can you just be careful? Um, that stuff is splashing all, all over my laptop. And then he barely looks at me, acknowledge, barely acknowledges me, he says, and kind of laughs, well, this is a splash zone. Now I'm getting furious. <laughs> I am feeling disrespected. Uh, you don't treat a customer this way. I'm immediately, look, okay, who, who is the manager here? But of course, before I talk to the manager, I'm going to talk to him. And so I said, so do you mean to tell me? And it's as if the Spirit of God just halted my brakes. I'm working on a sermon about godliness. (laughs) Reflecting the character of God. Allowing the mercies of Christ toward me to flow out to this gentleman right now. But I am about to lay into this guy and perhaps as loud as I can so that other people will hear. And I stopped. And in my heart, or in my heart, I said, no, die on the altar to self right now. The Spirit will empower you to do it. The gospel has this claim on your life. What does it look like to respond to this young man with a godly attitude. And in that moment, I didn't finish what I was gonna say. I just gently said, you know what, never mind. And I went about my work. I said a quick prayer in the quiet of my heart for this guy. Now, I needed to repent of anger because I was angry, so I don't think I walked through that perfectly. But that's just a very simple example of climbing up on the altar and dying to self. Why? So that I can earn God's favor? No. So that I maybe get a little more blessing from him in a sermon today? No. Simply because Christ climbed up on a cross for me. He did not talk back. He did not bring himself down from that cross. He did not call a host of angels to destroy the very ones that were driving the nails through his hand. He stood silent, the scriptures say, and he bore the wrath of God. He presented himself on an altar made of wood. The mercies of God in Christ that move us to put ourselves on the altar. Now listen, that that might seem radical, that might seem extreme to some people, but I want you to notice something. Paul would say, yeah, that's good. That's, in fact, notice the word he uses. At the end of verse one, he says, holy and acceptable to God, offer up yourselves, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, the, The word spiritual translated there is reasonable. You could translate that your reasonable worship. In other words, Paul is saying to climb up on that altar is reasonable. It's right. It's, it, 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 it is, it, it's, it's not only what God demands, it's what God deserves. 
because of the mercies that he has poured us out on us. It is what God saved us for, to live for his glory and not our own. I want to encourage you to a personal Bible study this week or in the coming weeks in Ephesians 4, 17 through 521 and Colossians 3, 1 through 17 because you really see this in those passages. You see godliness come through and you see this idea that at the heart of pursuing godliness is this putting on and putting off, laying, if you will, yourself at the altar for the glory of God in and through your life. And when we do that, it's what Paul says, calls spiritual worship. That's not just some big you know, esoteric phrase. What, what is that? Look, no, that's what it looks like. It looks like sitting in a Starbucks and fighting your anger and being merciful to that gentleman. It, it gets to our feet in very practical ways. So we see that the basis of our pursuit of godliness is Christ himself. We see that the reality of our godliness is not just mere activity, it's worship. And finally, we see that the path to our godliness is what Paul gives us. Notice verse 2. He goes on to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul gives us a not this, but this. Did you notice that? Do not be conformed. Now, in view of God's mercy, offer up your life. Here's what that means. Do not be conformed to the world, but this, be transformed. Do not align yourselves with the structures and the philosophies and the values of the world around you, but be transformed. Be transformed. As people transformed by the mercies of God in Christ, you think about this, we are transformed already in one sense, aren't we? We have a new heart. The spirit of God and the miracle of regeneration has made us, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, new creations. In chapter 4, verse 17, Ephesians, he says, he warns them, he says, listen, don't think like the Gentiles think. You don't have to do that. Their minds are darkened. <clears throat> you don't have to live like them. You, you are a new creation. And as a new creation, you have been empowered by the spirit of God to put that remaining old man, old, uh, old man to death. You, you have learned Christ. He is your motivation. He, he is, his spirit is your strength. And so as people transformed by the mercies of God in Christ, we, we now think and we act differently. That, that's what Paul is going to do in Romans 12. 
right after verse 2, he's going to start laying it out. So, for those of you who steal, actually, that's Ephesians. But he's going to talk about what it looks like to live with one another. He's going to talk about how we relate to one another. We now are empowered to think and act differently than the world that we live in. That's what it means to be transformed. It doesn't mean we're withdrawn from the world. It means we are different from the world. And that difference is the Holy Spirit who lives in us, making us a new creation in Christ, and empowering us to live accordingly. See, that's what godliness is. Godliness is, is simply being who you already are. <laughs> Christ is your godliness in one sense. You are a son and a daughter of God in Christ Jesus. You wear the team's jersey. And the Christian life is just learning increasingly and progressively how to live as a member of God's family. A family that, by the way, he will never kick you out of. You are justified by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. And no scheme of hell can undo what God has done. And so you are simply learning to live. Godliness is just learning to live as the one who you are. And we will all stumble and fall. I stumbled at Starbucks this week as anger welled up in my heart. By the mercies of God, he hemmed me in. And I didn't do anything stupid. So that's what we're... That's what we're talking about here. The Spirit empowers us for godliness. Now, here's the temptation. And I, whether it is sin or it's our culture, the temptation to be a spiritual chameleon is strong. You know what I mean by that? You know what a chameleon is? That, little, that ugly little lizard who has the power, has the ability to change its colors to adapt to its surroundings. See, Paul is saying here in Romans 12 too, don't be a spiritual chameleon. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't allow your surroundings, the culture, the society, your, your past, your experiences, don't, don't, don't adapt to those things. Don't allow the world around you to shape you. That's to be conformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed because of the mercies of Christ and by the mercies of Christ. Seasoned saints, be transformed in how you think about retirement. Singles, be transformed about how you think about relationships with the opposite sex. 
As Christians, we're called to think about and handle our money differently. We are called to think about higher education and career differently. As those saved by the gospel to live for Jesus, we're called to think about marriage and parenting and gender and politics differently. We think about what we watch on TV and what we click on the internet differently. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. And we owe how we need the Spirit's work. Listen, there, there is an urgency in that we there is an urgency in the church today for godliness, for godly transformation from the most popular preacher to the newest saint. We need revival that begins in the hearts of God's people because we are by nature conformists. <laughs> we are by nature conformists. The, the power of peer pressure, the idolatrous craving for acceptance and approval the allure of relevance and significance. Conformity comes natural to us. I like what John Stott has said. He said, we human beings seem to be imitative by nature. We need a model to copy. And ultimately, there are only two. There is the world, which is passing away, and there is God's will, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world and its ways, which is passing away, but be transformed. Be transformed to God's will. So how do we pursue godliness instead of conforming to the world? Well, isn't God merciful? Because he tells us. <laughs> He doesn't just leave us to figure it out ourselves. Notice verse 2 again. <clears throat> Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, Paul doesn't tell us in these verses how to renew our minds so that we will live to glorify the Lord. But Scripture does teach us in other places, doesn't it? We know what this means. It's the analogy of faith. Scripture best interprets Scripture. So we can go. The Bible is our best commentary on what it means to renew our minds. Number one we renew our minds with God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God's word is breathed out by him. It is inspired by his spirit. It is profitable for all things. It, it makes us competent for all that he calls us to. And so we renew our minds by digging into the thoughts of God, which is precisely what scripture is. 
We take our mind and we subject it to the Lord's mind. That's why the Bible is so central to our lives, to our faith, to our gathering, to our community groups, to our fellowship. God's spirit. God's spirit. Colossians 1, 9 through 14 says that as Paul prays that we would walk in the power of the spirit with all knowledge and wisdom. Why? For a life pleasing to God. Godliness. Listen, don't Don't leave out the spirit in your life in the word because it'll get you nowhere. The spirit illuminates our hearts and minds to the word. The spirit helps us to know, to understand, and to rightly apply. We can't go it alone. We need the Holy Spirit. That's the way God intended it. It's what Jesus said to his disciples. When I go, I will send another one to you. He will bring to mind all that, you, all that I have said. The Christian life is not me and my Bible. It's, it's me. It's my Bible. It's the cross. It's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the church, and the Holy Spirit working it all together. Apart from him, there's nothing there. (laughs) So God's word, we renew our minds by God's word. We renew our minds through the working of the spirit, and we renew our minds by availing ourselves to God's people. I love Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Encourage and stir one another up. To what? Emotionalism? No, to godliness. He just reminded the, the, the Hebrews of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, now stand firm in your faith. Hold fast to what it is that you confess. Oh, and by the way, you need to encourage one another. Don't forsake meeting because you need one another in your pursuit of godly living. And so encourage one another, stir one another up, spur one another on, and all the more as the day of his return draws near. And so we see with the, our minds are renewed. This transformation comes through the renewing of our minds, and the renewing of our minds happens as we are in God's word, as we are depending on God's spirit, and as we give ourselves to God's people. Now, we need to close this. So I I do want to say something to the mother specifically. Um, I'm going to end here. I have application, but I'm going to ask you to look to that application on the blog post that will be coming your way uh, this week on the sermon. Um, Because I, I, I do just have a sense that the spirit wants me to just end with the mothers. Moms, we are grateful for you. My mom is here this morning, Ray. I'm so grateful that she is here with her husband, Larry. We are grateful for every mother in this room. I hope as Tom prayed you felt the pleasure of God. You, you sensed that he loves you and he is 
for you. And I pray that the Lord keeps you and protects you, that he keeps you from becoming a spiritual chameleon, adapting to your surroundings. I pray that, that he uses you to stir up revival in his church, your convictions and your passion for the Lord that is manifested through how you do motherhood. I want to encourage you. You are on the front lines. You are on the front lines. It's called home. And many of you are there constantly. Some of you have to bear the weight of working outside the home and then coming home and being a mother. I pray the Lord gives you the grace for that. But you are on the front lines in many ways. And let's not kid ourselves. You, the culture despises in many ways what you stand for. They might call you primitive. They might accuse you of setting back the woman movement. There's truth to that. Not that you're setting back the woman movement. But that the culture is not necessarily your friend. But guess what? We are lost right now. Our world is lost. And there are women who are out there and they're looking for something else. And as you give yourself to being a godly mother, those that God moves on will take notice. They're watching. Don't think everything you're doing is just in your own four walls and it's for naught. You might be tired of diapers. You might wonder why your teenager just still won't listen to you. You might think your husband doesn't really respect you and acknowledge all that you do. You might feel like the world is passing you by. No, it's not. The Lord has made you a mother and the Lord wants to use you as a mother. Yes, first and foremost, in your home with your children, but also in your neighborhood and on the softball field and everywhere else that God may have you right now. And you never know how your example as a godly mother will be used by the Lord to bless and transform others. So let your light shine through your motherhood. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. So you do not have to be conformed to this world as a woman or as a mother, but you can be transformed by standing firm in your biblical convictions of what it means to be a woman, of what it means to be a wife, of what it means to be a mother. And yes, we'll throw grandmas in there too. 
there is an urgent need for godliness in the church. And godly mothers are critical in that need. And I, and I speak for the team, we are deeply grateful for the mothers in this church. And our prayer is Romans 12, 1 through 2. That your motherhood would be motivated in every way by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus towards you. That every day you get up, your mothering would be a pursuit of godliness that is an expression of worship before the throne of God above. And that as you give yourself to the word, you find your identity in the cross and you learn to depend on the spirit for all he has called you to. That you will be blessed. That your family, your children, your husband will be blessed. That this church will be even more of a light in a dark city. And that God, above all, will be glorified. Mothers, can you stand one more time as we close? Lord, we pray for these women. You have made them. You have saved them. Lord, they have the children they have because you have given them to them. And you have put your spirit in them. You dwell in them in infinite power. And I pray they experience that power for all the ways that they need it today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year. Lord, we pray that you would grant them the grace to walk as godly mothers in a godless generation, that you would give them understanding of your word, a passion for your word, that your word would be a treasure to them, that it would be the place that they go to, that their instincts would be what is the culture around, would not be what is the culture around me say, but what does your word say? Lord, that you would instill in them a confidence in your living word in the hands of your spirit, that you would give them a courage that comes from knowing that in Christ nothing can separate them from the love of God. Who can, who should I then fear? Not man, for God will never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, make these women, women of your word, women of the gospel, women who have an impact beyond their four walls, women who you use in other women's lives, mothers who point to your glory and demonstrate your goodness and love. Lord, make these mothers even more godly than they already are. For their good, for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.